This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Spice Bags, where three opinionated ladies, Blanca, May and me, Dee, have a dish about food in Ireland from an international perspective. The Headstuff Podcast Network is Ireland's largest podcast network. It's a collective of shows covering everything from comedy to true crime, arts and culture to politics and food, interview shows to narrative storytelling. If you're a fan of this show or any of the shows on the network, you can join Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the network and by becoming a member, you can get behind-the-scenes access, bonus episodes, exclusive interviews, early access to events, merchandise and lots, lots more. For example... If you all tuned into our last episode with interview with Atmet Didi, we had lots of so much information with Atmet that we couldn't fit it all in one episode. So that bonus material is now up on our page, the Spice Bags page on the Headstuff Plus. It's just five euros plus fat per month when you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting. We hope you'll support us. You still need to get access to everything. So all the bonus material for all the shows on the network will be available to you. So for all these details and to sign up, headstuffpodcast.com. Welcome to Spice Bags and happy Lunar New Year's Eve, girls. Happy Lunar New Year's Eve. Yay. Happy Chinese New Year. First, I did just want to say that we were super excited for this episode to interview Lord Mayor Hazel Chu. But so first, excited. I know, right? And then we're going to just briefly go into Lunar New Year's or Chinese New Year's as it's popularly known here. Um, it's going to be Friday, February 12th. It's the Year of the Ox. It is celebrated not only by the Chinese, but by the Koreans, the Vietnamese, and the Malaysians. And not, as I just recently discovered, by the Thai and the Japanese. For many, it is the most important holiday and everyone gets two weeks off because it is the only time for them to be able to travel to their home seat. Of course, we will be, all of us, celebrating the Lunar New Year in a slightly different way than we have in the past. Okay. Girls, are you ready? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so um, we, for New Year's, did need to tackle this notion of Chinese dumplings. And I it was my crazy idea to do a Chinese dumpling quick fire, just so everyone gets the basics of Chinese dumplings in hopefully less than two minutes. Okay, go. What is the Chinese New Year dumpling? Chinese jiaozi dumplings, which are traditionally made by the Northern Chinese, the Cantonese, and indeed many regions of China do not do this, for New Year are little packets of meat in a flour and water pasta wrapper. The French sometimes called the Chinese dumpling ravioli pequinois or Beijing ravioli, which I actually think is more accurate if you have never seen a dumpling before. Also in the North, the family gathers to make them and that's all you eat as opposed to other Chinese tables who have a variety of dishes. Interesting. The Turkish manti, the Chinese claim to have invented everything but most evidence points to the Chinese dumpling being originally from Turkey, i.e. the Turkish manti. We talked about this with Amadidi in the last episode, and Turkey continues its tradition of manti, which are smaller in size, almost like if you think about tortellini, 
as opposed to ravioli um, in size, and they're very laborious. So it's pasta filled with lamb. The other region who makes dumplings like the northern Chinese that comes to mind are the Siberian Russians. And for their new year, they make palmini, which are even more similar to jiaozi, Chinese dumplings, than they are to manti, which I have had in the past with sour cream, butter, and onions. Now, Siberia, Manchuria, and northeast China have had drifting borders and shared customs. They all make dumplings as a family, and it makes sense to make a huge mountain because you can freeze them as the weather is freezing, and then you eat them until the spring comes. So girls, I have a theory. that the Chi- Here in Ireland, I feel like everybody associates Chinese dumplings with New Year. Um, and my sister-in-law pointed out that in her opinion, Chinese dumplings, jiaozi, are the best gateway for Westerners into Chinese food because who doesn't love a dumpling? I knew you had some thoughts about this. Well, I think um, one interesting thing about the Chinese is that they travel or they immigrate to different countries from different regions. So the Chinese that I've met in Dublin tend to come from the Liaoning province, which capital is Xi'an, and Xi'an used to be an imperial city. So I think that because of that, maybe you find these dumplings, because certainly in Madrid, these type of dumplings wouldn't be as popular. I think the Spanish um, are more obsessed maybe with noodles or rice. I was going to say the same. I'm not sure. I mean, definitely Irish people love dumplings. I mean, even in the last year, the amount of dumpling places that have opened up in Dublin, um, you know, specifically um, is is like incredible, I think. Um, but I also think that as well in Ireland, noodles would be maybe more of a gateway for for Irish people into Chinese food. Um, or yeah, just because that's been around maybe longer. I feel like dumplings is It's more familiar, maybe, no, D? Yeah, I think so. Maybe, possibly. Um, also we have an obsession with pasta. So, I mean, similar, um, from that perspective, but definitely we have a huge goal for dumplings. My husband just bought about 30 euros worth of dumplings and stashed them in the freezer. I don't think he even realizes that New Year's is coming up. So I actually made wontons yesterday. Am I right in saying wontons are dumplings as well? They are. Yes, yeah, so I got a meal kit from Kwanji Chan and the actual, the meal kit this time was wontons. So I made, but there was so many, you know, I made them all up, like you just said. Um, they were pork, uh, pork mince and prawn um, and I made up loads of them and then I just froze them. So I am super looking forward to just being able to dip into those for the next, as you said, until spring. <laughs> I've never been able to make dumplings and freeze them. I always eat them. <laughs> well, yeah, but there was 60. So, I mean, I would have been doing well if I ate six. I did eat like 10 to 20 of them yesterday. <laughs> I kept every like, I just kept making them and getting hungry and just cooking a few and then just making more. Blanca, can you talk a little bit about your time in Dalian, which of course is from that region that makes dumplings? Did you yeah, so basically the dumplings in, in the north of China are very different. I was accustomed to the Cantonese style, very thin, um, more like egg and, and more like egg flour and, and water rather than this really plain, it's just a flour and water. And what is different about dumpling flour is that it's very elastic. So you can shape them. And that's why 
Chinese people, you see them making them and they can make all these beautiful shapes. And um, so it's a little bit thicker and the flavor is different. And then inside, traditionally, they always have juicai. May pronounce it? Juicai. Juicai. Um, which is a hard word to pronounce, as you can tell. But juicai is part of the allium family and it gives it such a distinct flavor. So they're made with pork and juicai. And that's really it. And, you know, some seasonings and, you know, a little bit of soy sauce. But that flavor combination is something that is from that region. And everyone makes them for parties, team events. And some places in Dublin, you can go and do karaoke and dumpling making, which I've been to a couple of times and I love it. The only thing is sometimes, you know, you look at how people make dumplings and some people make them so beautiful and neat and some people don't. And then you end up eating these dumplings that are kind of ugly looking and beautiful looking. So some restaurants will um, make some really nice ones for you instead. In our family, in our family with the people who aren't really good at pleating, we always have, everyone has their own corner. So, you know, you know, you have to eat your own dumpling if it's ugly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Is there such a thing as an ugly dumpling? Oh, gosh. Yes. (laughs) Especially for Chinese people. I remember getting looks like, oh, sorry, that's not the way you do it. It's, It's a very kind of full, like an operation where they do it with their hands and they pull on the skin. It's a beautiful operation. I have some beautiful pictures of our Ayi, or nanny in China making them. She was so artistic. But then I realized the flower is totally different. So it allows for you to pleat them better than if you were using normal flour. I My think grand, I could be accused of making ugly wontons yesterday. Some of them were definitely ugly. Sorry. But the rolling, I would say the rolling of the wrappers is actually more laborious than the pleating because you need to get these perfectly round discs when you roll them out. Yeah. Um, mm. And they have to have that small hump in the center. And then it's yeah. translucent around. Um, and that. Oh, well. Yeah. And also you need a special rolling pin. So what they do is they, they make the dough and then they make it into a little snake. At least my daughters think it looks like a snake. Then they cut the snake into little pieces. And then you roll that out with a little tiny rolling pin. And you have to leave that middle a little bit thicker. So it's a challenge. Of course, you can go to the markets in China and buy them. I used to buy them. Well, I was going to say, Blanca, that um, my cousins have my grandparents' rolling pins. You know what they are? They are from the chopped up off ends of broomsticks. Really? I didn't know that. I have a couple of them. They're lovely. And they're great also for children. I'm surprised you can't find those in Ireland because they're great for small hands for rolling out different things. They're just like miniature uh, rolling pins. So cute. So you need those things. You need the flour, the juicy, and the rolling pin. Up next, we're going to go to our exciting interview with Lord Mayor Hazel Chu. But just before that, we want to tell you about another food podcast in the Headstuff Podcast Network. That's Bangin'. That's Bangin' with Chris and Marcus. Hello, my friends, and welcome to That's Bangin' with me, Marcus Olera. And me, Chris Mellon. A new podcast celebrating everything good, from farm to plate, ship to service, and field and fork. A celebration of everything tasty, fresh, and excellent that's coming off our island at the moment. As well as interviews with people who are shaping the best of the best of food and drink from around the country. We'll be available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Hello, 
and welcome to Spice Bags, the podcast about global food and global people from an Irish perspective. Today, we are beyond thrilled to have Lord Mayor Hazel Chu, and I am joined by Dee Laffin. Hello. Hi. 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 I think I speak for both of us when I say that we have been following you in your career for a long time and that you have been a massive inspiration. (laughs) Uh, so welcome. Also, uh, very quick question. How do we address you? Do we call you Lord Mayor? Okay. <laughs> uh, you have been very honest about the advantages and pitfalls of growing up in Ireland as both Chinese and Irish, and also about your family, especially the role that your mother plays in your life. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Um, and also, do you feel more ch- Irish or more Chinese? Oh, well, eh, I was born and raised here. I'm like one way or another. Um, I think Irish is, is, is the, 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 well, the thing I'm more uh, uh, akin to, uh, especially since, well, uh, Ireland is home. And also I grew up with Irish culture. I grew up, uh, with Irish friends. And, uh, yeah, there's no escaping that fact, no matter how many people think I'm not Irish. So uh, do I feel more Chinese? No. Like, I, I get called a banana constantly when I'm in, in Hong Kong because I'm yellow on the outside and white on the inside, <laughs> according to people. So that is not a good term to call people, by the way, Sorry, just so so people know. Um, yeah. When, when you go to Hong Kong or anywhere else, don't don't call people that, please. So, uh, and it, it, and but do I have... Uh, um, uh, retain a lot of Chinese culture. Yeah, I try to, um, especially the traditions, because I guess for my mom it was very hard because she emigrated over here without knowing anyone and made this her home. But like all immigrants, you always have kind of one foot uh, in the country that you left and one foot in the country you made home. So it becomes this, you're kind of almost stateless and it's quite sad in many ways so now i'm not saying this is a sub story many migrants i know have really happy stories but i think a lot of migrants are are just um they they feel kind of stateless especially first generation and by the time their children the second generation comes on it's really important then for us to keep as many traditions as possible and many uh, many of the culture so i don't really feel one way or another more one way or another if that makes sense so um i i guess more yeah so it's it's a hard one to call, I guess, as much as each other. So, and and Hello? what was it um like when you were growing up in Dublin? And was your your mother? She played a really um I suppose obviously she played an important role in your life. But you have a really strong connection with her and growing up here because she probably I would like mom growing up in in Dublin would have been I guess for her it was uh new it was strange it was not it was uh really novel in so many ways because it was a new place at the same time it was scary because she was here on her own so um and for me growing up in Dublin it was home like this is the thing a lot of people kind of think I I find a place novel not that Dublin isn't amazing but for me I was born and raised here there there, not that there's nothing novel about it but there isn't there isn't this kind of it wouldn't be the same experience as my mother like when I went to New York or when I went to Sydney or China and perhaps would have been those experiences that my my mother felt when she came here it was a person going to a different place uh starting a job doing something different 
But unlike many of our young people who have to emigrate, it's that kind of new beginning, but also um, fearfulness of what will happen and apprehension. But I don't get that with Dublin. Dublin, Dublin to me is home. So, so I don't have that. I, it's a completely different growing up experience to my mother. And so. your family were a restaurant family, right? So your parents met in a restaurant. Your mum was, I believe, was that where she was washing the dishes, met your father there. Um, they went on to have, I heard you speak about, you had a chip van out in Fairhouse yeah. um, before they went on to own their own restaurants. And can you tell us a little bit about that? What it's like to come from that kind of background so- as well? Well, you end up knowing a lot of how to make curry and chips. So I uh, would be the, the, the first thing. Also, you, you learn a lot about how to like uh, prepare food. So um, it, it was it was an odd experience growing up, but no different to a lot of other families. I, I know a lot of uh, second generation um, migrant families that would have the same story I have, which would be going home from, or not going home from school, but going to the takeaway or in my case, the chip van from school and sitting there and, and doing my homework and watching my parents work. And this chip van at the, at the time was very funny. It was parked right across my school <laughs> so uh, in Fur House. Now there's a wall there. I went back the other day to to, to uh, kind of look at the school and kind of just soak it in on, oh, look, this is where I'm from. And then I looked across the road to where the chip van would have been parked and there was this wall <laughs> and I was going, oh, look, it's gone now. But and was it a, uh, was no, it a we, true we, chippy van? Like, did you do, like you said, curry and chips? Was it all chips and burgers and things? Or was there mm-hmm. Chinese food that you served or anything like that? Um it, the chip fan uh, served, uh, I guess, a lot of curry chips and uh, other Chinese food, but mainly chicken bowls as well, which isn't Chinese food. Like I know yourselves are, are a podcast talking about food as well. I like to point this out to everyone, and I'm sure it will go to to a lot of disdain and, and people would just be unhappy with me. But like chicken bowls are not Chinese food and either are spice bags. So I know that's very controversial altogether, especially in light of the name of the podcast. But oh, no, uh, we, but we, no, we, know, like, uh, <laughs> we we looked up the roots of that. It's definitely a Dublin thing. <laughs> it is, and I was I was trying to explain this to my mom, who obviously serves spice bags uh, in the takeaway. <laughs> and uh, now, and she was very baffled at the beginning of the spice bag phenomenon. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it, it was very much her going, "Why is it Chinese?" And I was like, "Well." Um, <laughs> because a Chinese uh, takeaway did it and now it's Chinese and she just goes but I don't get it which region is it from Hazel and I spent ages then having to explain to her that no 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 it, it's not from any region mom you didn't miss anything <laughs> like in, uh, like she, she loves following kind of Chinese uh, cuisine and culture especially on YouTube and on various blogs so she was completely baffled that suddenly there was this thing that she didn't know of and, and that completely passed her by until it was in front of her and she, she kind of was disappointed pointed that she didn't realize so I had to explain to her no 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 you didn't miss anything it's just something that someone made up in Dublin so uh, uh or made up in Ireland I think did it first come from Galway I'm not I sure think, yeah. so um 
Yeah. So so uh dal and chicken balls and uh they didn't have spice bags back in the day. It was chicken balls, chips, curry sauce, fried rice, rice, uh dishes like that. And it was in the eighties. Uh it was I can't even remember whether it was a proper fan fan, but it was it had space for me to be in it. Then again I was tiny, so uh compared to now. Uh so yeah, so that's what we did until then. Uh, they had to uh, close up shop and they ended up going to a takeaway in Maynooth and then a takeaway in Selbridge. And then they saved up enough for their first restaurant. And then mum carried on and, uh, with, with the restaurant business. Growing up in, you know, with the chip van and then later on with the restaurants, what is your relationship with food as a result? You know, I... Yeah, like, are you like, oh my God, I just, I just, I don't want, I don't want to, like, I don't want to see a meal ticket. I don't want to do this. I don't, you know, like, what? Oh, no, 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 no. Like, I, I, perhaps my relationship uh, with food, if you, if you, uh, is, is a bit too friendly, some would, would say. So, uh, if you were trolls of me, uh, of mine online, which you're both not, uh, you would say I eat too much of it. So, but I would like to think that I just like food a lot. So, and my relationship growing up was that I would know a lot of, where food came hmm. from and how food was made, which isn't a bad thing. Like I, it's funny, my, I guess because of the fact that my parents didn't have um, a choice, they had to bring me to work. So they had to bring me to work and they didn't have uh, childcare that they, I ended up knowing a lot about food from a very young age. Like even by say the age of six, I would have been able to uh, tell you how rice is yeah. made and yeah. how uh, which are, are the basics, of course, but how rice is made, what goes into a dish. By the age of 11, I was able to uh, work in the restaurant, uh, helping pack food, helping do the things that kids uh, kids uh, uh, are, are lumped with doing. So, uh, like, one of the things I did was uh, uh, pluck chickens and ducks a lot, so... Uh, because those were the jobs that hey that will keep you entertained my child protection social work of um uh fiance uh tells me that if it was nowadays chances are my parents would have been told you should have had that child back at home and and uh and and at home learning is that or at home uh watching tv or doing whatever but the thing is they my, my parents brought me to work because that was what they had to do but it also gave me a very good insight of how the business worked and how food worked and how uh, food was made and where it came from so I think that was really good for me so like I did every job from washing dishes to waitressing to as I said plucking uh, uh, (laughs) plucking chickens and ducks and uh, to uh, packing orders to at one point cooking in the restaurant and in in uh, the takeaways and that would always to some extent benefit me because I know how to cook now. I know how to run a business. I know how um, to manage a team. So, and, but yeah, it it was a very different um, way of growing up, I guess. What are some of your favorite foods? Oh, sometimes it's yes, not yeah, Chinese it's food definitely not mine I'm Asian and I'm like no I want a risotto <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I I love sushi. I uh, love a good steak, even though my other half is trying to tell uh, turn us into vegetarians for quite a while now. Um, I I I love um Mexican food. I also love things that are very spicy. So um in so that's why in in Asian food in Chinese food I would particularly uh opt for the Sichuan uh the the kind of more authentic Sichuan dishes than anywhere else because it's loaded with chili. So uh with Canton dishes, I guess. The Canton dishes that I really like is your more authentic version of like a sweet and sour or your more authentic uh, versions of um, kind of a braised aubergine. When I say more authentic is because there has like every um, culture when somehow when they go to a different country, uh, the food goes to a different country, especially during the 80s. There has always been a modification of said food, so you would see it with Italian food here. You would see it with Chinese food here. Like the the taste, but the taste and kind of way of cooking got modified. So your sweet and sour, what that kind of came from the eighties takeaway or seventies takeaway in Ireland uh, to now is completely different to what a sweet and sour in say Hong Kong would taste like. So uh, and it, it's odd. I I would miss that kind of authenticity. Uh, I was going to say that Cantonese food um, has a tendency to be very bastardized when it comes over to other countries, right? It gets very gloopy and sweet. Um, and yeah. yeah, and it, it's Poor like starch. how much <laughs> yes. can you add into it? Yeah, it's like it, it, like I would look at the dish, and especially nowadays with with our chefs, like the especially the older ones, the first thing they want to do is go put in some corn flour, and they're going, "Why? Why would you do that? Look, it's perfectly nice as it is." And the first thing they'll go is, "Well, it's it's not kind of the consistency isn't right." And I said, "Well, what part are you talking about?" And he just goes, "Well, the sauce it needs to be like more gravy like." And I said, "But it's not." A gravy. It's like a, a sauce that goes in with the food itself as part of the dish. So you don't need to put corn flour on that. Or when they fry the hell out of everything and they're going, like Chinese, Cantonese dishes, especially uh, the authentic ones in Hong Kong and Canton, tends to be steamed. A lot of food would tend to be steamed. They tend to be quite healthy. They tend to be vegetable based. Whereas when they move abroad, everything is suddenly fried and uh, uh, meat based and goopy. So, mm. um, uh, so also we are okay on, on our podcast. We have been interested in this idea of racism and discrimination, and we want to talk about it through food. And I know that you have talked quite openly about you know some attacks on your mom when you were eleven. You know when you she was working in the restaurant, um, and then also we also wanted to, so there's that sort of racism I think that you experienced, but. The other form of racism that we wanted to talk was maybe about Irish and Irish media perceptions about Chinese food. So do you have thoughts about both of those? I do. (laughs) (laughs) And um, (laughs) and, and I think (laughs) I'm trying to think what will get me into the least amount of trouble. But I I get myself into trouble just every day at this stage. Um, 
I, I would think that as the years, and this goes to a generational thing as well. So I think when my parents, when they first met in the 80s, food, as we just said, was different. So and there's been a progression in a good way of going into more authentic area. And because food, uh, and the, the portrayal of said uh, um, kind of cuisines and culture has also progressed, thankfully. Uh, but still, up to like ten years ago, the portrayal of um, of Chinese food was always your kind of, as I said, chicken balls and three in ones or four in ones. And when we talk about it, in even for the food writers, they wouldn't talk about kind of the authentic dishes. Or when they do talk about the authentic dishes, again, they go back to the traditional, uh, not traditional, the, the very common kind of uh, black bean or, um, or your um, curries. Whereas there's a whole plethora of things out there when it comes to uh, Chinese food and I like I love that there are writers out there that talk about things uh, more I love that there are kind of food critics that have gone to the smaller pockets and more um, I guess niche uh, type of cuisine Mm. and that I think has opened people's eyes up a lot um, in the city and in, in the country as well and but that takes effort. I think it takes someone who's writing about it to go, no, I'm not just going to go to this kind of Chinese restaurant that serves the same dish for the last 10 years, uh, 20 years and order the same thing. I'm going to go to them and ask for something particular or special or tell their chefs to tell me, give, uh, to, to cook me something different. Or I'll go to this little pocket of, um, O'Connell Street and, and try something different mm-hmm. here. So I, I think that, that, that effort and that, um, uh, that, that that effort does pay off because it opens up then people to a whole load of different um, opportunities when it comes to tastes and uh, um, kind of cultures, etc. But the media, I guess, uh, so far have been good. So in the last couple of years, beforehand, I think it was just harder because I think they kind of saw what was right in front and took what was uh, to them, oh, this is your your traditional uh, cuisine, I'll go to there. And whereas nowadays people will kind of ask around, people will go to what is more kind of um, hidden. And, and that's a good thing. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Do you think that there's room for improvement, though? In media, no. yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There always is. Like I, I remember for a while there that there were so many, uh, uh, and a lot of the food critics are, are people I know and I love and I get on really well with them. But they would be sent kind of, I guess, and it was because of how the city was shaped up. So let's put it to Dublin uh, because, again, I'm, I'm mayor of Dublin, but it's also because it's it's my stomping ground. So, so, for example, if we take Dublin, because of things that were opening in the last three years that were very uniform mm. and very, and I'm not going to call out particularly particular groups or anything, but you did. You had a, a pleasure of restaurants that were opening up that were kind of, same yeah. same if that's no. the yeah. best no, way to describe it and so yeah so unfortunately then your your food critics or your uh, uh or anyone writing about it or anyone that was even just going along would would be tasting the same and would be just writing about the same so and but there wasn't anything else popping up and that that goes back to actually not just 
their part in writing about different. It goes back to actually how we plan the city and our own economics, because if we can't provide people the space to uh, be able to open different um, outlets and cuisines, then that's going to be an issue. Like, and and I, I, I don't mean to go all kind of serious and talk about economics here, but when you have restaurants, uh, when you have, say, uh, a, a, a couple that um, saved up X amount trying to open a, uh, uh, say, a Vietnamese restaurant because that's what uh, their culture yeah. is, but they don't have that much money, and they do, but and they and they go and find a pop up to then be realized that there's key money that needs to be paid here, that the whole street uh, uh, is dominated by by uh, the bigger players, and they can't afford it. Then that kind of squeezed mm-hmm. them out, and that's what we've been noticing as well in the last couple of years. Like what I've noticed during the recession was there was a huge then influx of uh, amazing cuisines and culture because people can afford to establish those places and people uh, put in their their savings and and their time into it but then suddenly in the last three years of things being more celtic tigerish i guess is the way to phrase it uh before this year's uh covid before at the so say 2009 16 onwards to 2019 when things were more Celtic Tigerish you suddenly saw everything being back to uniform again and and because those were the companies that can afford to 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 buy the space to open the restaurants and that is a huge detriment to to our taste buds but to uh culture in general to kind of progressing culture through people's food and uh uh, uh, traditions and kind of uh, uh, ability to cook. I so. completely agree. I mean, it's the same, same hipster companies that have sort of yes. taken over. <laughs> Let's not name them. Let's not name them. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't need a letter from, from one of them going to them. <laughs> and you mentioned... But we all know who they are. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you have favorite restaurants that you do visit in the city um, or used to, I suppose, up until recently? Oh, that's that's in- the thing, isn't it, Saj, uh, uh, to, to, to say used to because it is used to yeah. uh, in, in some cases. So um, I would have uh, gone quite regularly and met my brother because he lives in uh, the north uh, city to uh, M&L. So uh, mainly because uh, that was, as I said, I love Sichuan mm. cuisine. So I, I would eat there quite a lot. And it was the place that you can get like, I don't know, 15 dumplings for a fiver. Yes. Now they've increased their prices. So you can't get 15 dumplings for a fiver anymore. But um, my, uh, then my other go-tos, uh, because I love sushi, would be Mishi Sushi in Ranala. Because one day, Mishi, uh, Mishi, eh, Mishi was quite odd. One day, when I lived in Ranala about a decade ago, uh, when I first started living in Ranala, I walked down this lane, and I had no idea where the lane was going. Uh, but I just kind of went, oh, I walked down there. And there was uh, a sushi shop on the right. Uh, and um, it didn't look like a, sh- a sushi shop. It just had a sliding door, but there was a man standing at the counter who obviously had the chef's clothing on. So I was like, what is this? There's no sign or anything. And because it kind of reminded me of, um, I don't know if any of your listeners would know this, but there is a a Japanese um, uh, 
uh, card, uh, anime called Initial D that got made into a movie. Um, and it, it, it had this, um, it, it, the premise of it was this kid growing up in this tofu shop that looked exactly like Mishi's sushi shop. So it made me think, oh, maybe it sells tofu. I'll just go in there. And I was at the time going, why would somewhere in the middle of Ranala down the lane sell tofu, Hazel? But I went in ate some uh, sushi and it was amazing. So um, I have been back ever since. So so that was uh, pretty good. And then, of course, my own mother's cooking. I can't exactly be on a podcast talking about food and not mention <laughs> her. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she will kill me. There's been so many things that I haven't mentioned her. But I said, hey, I'm going to be talking about food on this. And she was like, oh, are you actually going to bother mentioning your own mother? I was like, oh, it seems a bit biased, though. Uh, but no, she, she has been great. Like she, unfortunately, due to the recession, had to close down uh, two of her restaurants they, they just like she had been in those restaurants for 27 years so it was heartbreaking yeah. to see her having to close it at the time uh, but she now has uh, a restaurant in Monkstown that's called Hakka Choi uh, that um, just opened right during COVID <laughs> so and then uh, one called Victoria Garden in Johnstown and they're both they're both okay. They're doing okay in takeaway, but I, I, I really feel bad for the staff because it's been a long haul for the last yeah. year, and for my mom, I think it's just been heartbreaking. And I don't mean that in a very sob story. Woe is us kind of way. Like we're we're still fine because let's be honest, she she has a roof over her head. She's doing her job, but it's just it's been hard, and it's been hard for people in the industry losing their jobs not knowing what's going on and i think we 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 need to do better by them so definitely and and you are a mum yourself um and your daughter at home do you cook for her and you know what you know are you do you love cooking what kind of food do you like to cook um, I'm really lazy. So I should probably preface that like at this stage. So um I I'm I'm lazy in cooking mainly because by the time uh Alex comes back from crash, if she's at crash, it's five. Uh I'm a bit fried by by that stage. She's a bit screamy because she's been at crash all day and then we're trying to cook. So they're like we, we, when she, <laughs> she's three and uh thankfully she eats some stuff, but there is standard three things that she now like all kids that they just go we're only eating these uh like uh, uh steamed salmon and rice which is an odd one but it was because i wanted to get fish in her when she was young that she started eating it and she actually still eats it uh spaghetti bolognese uh pizza and uh, uh, noodles she loves noodles like her mother so uh, those are the key staple things if you sway away from any of them she kind of gives you one of those looks and then uh, refuse to eat it so but then my brother who used to live with me only ate this is gonna sound really gross but pasta and gravy for about eight years of his life so so I'm like <laughs> And now he now he enjoys every type of cuisine. So I'm very hopeful for Alex that she will branch out in her taste buds. So, but um, do I enjoy cooking? If I had time, like if I had a lot of time, I would make dumplings from scratch. I would make 
soup from scratch or like when when uh, I had a lot of time uh, there was a period about a couple of weeks there where I was there going okay I have some time now to do stuff I need to, to do or want to do I ended up cooking a lot I ended up kind of uh, batch cooking a lot doing uh, uh, kind of uh, um, pot roast a lot so I, I like cooking I hate baking because I'm really crap at it but um, cooking wise I yeah I enjoy it it's kind of therapeutic brilliant um, I just I just um I want to go back to your mom really quickly just a little bit because you did say that you did say that your brother grew up with pasta and gravy but like was she a good cook and were there dishes that Oh, my mum's okay, amazing. So give me some like, the, the, the fact that Joe grew up with pasta and gravy, she was most unhappy about because, like, for her, she didn't quite understand why her child refused to eat her cooking. Uh, because I ate everything she cooked. Uh, but, like, Joe just was very much going, Yeah, no, I want pasta and gravy. And we don't even know where the hell it came from, to be honest with you. It was like, Oh, one day, I think it was because one day I made. Uh, I I made gravy with uh, a roast, and so there was gravy, and then he wanted some pasta, and then he mixed the pasta with the gravy, and that was it. It was like a eureka moment for for him, and he just went, "This is the only thing I'm eating from now on." And I'm there going, "Oh crap!" Because my mom was not happy from 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 that point on. On on uh, any time she cooked, he just kind of scrunch his nose up at it going yeah no uh she was a great cook so there are some really good canton uh dishes that i love her making so like uh the um uh the hot pot uh aubergine and mince is really good it's braised and it's very simple it doesn't take that long but the, her added ingredients is like a salty Ooh, fish yeah. which kind of brings out an extra flavor for it so uh her peking ribs are really good so she would make the peking sauce from scratch and uh she would actually uh I covered the ribs up with um what was it uh so so instead of just um coating them in a, a batter she tends to be very light on it with a tempura batter more than anything else and then stir up the Thinking sauce. There's another one that she made recently, which is braised uh, pork belly with uh, taro. So. Um, and taro is like a potato mm, consistency. Yeah. So it was braised for like 12 hours or something on low uh, heat. So it was really soft and melty by the time uh, it was done. So uh, like, and then her usual favorites are like your steamed kind of ginger and spring uh, scallion and um, um, sea bass or your stir fried uh, bak choy with, um, or stir fried choy sum with uh, uh, ginger. So like there, there's a couple of kind of like on a Chinese meal every time every time I go home for for dinner there will always be a couple of dishes in front of you because there that's how the meal uh goes so um uh and then um yeah so the staples will always be a fish uh vegetable and then other um whatever is 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 
kind of in mom's head at the time. There sometimes will always be a chicken as well. She does this really lovely um, salted chicken. So uh, uh, um, we call it in Chinese yim gokai, which is like salt uh, cooked chicken. So so she has this wok that's um, chick that's salt and herbs and uh, five spices and loads of different things, and it's kind of a couple of inch inches thick in the wok and she would put the chicken wrapped up in uh, tin foil into this wok and cover it with all uh, the, uh, this stuff and then put it in uh, the oven for like an hour and a half whatever time the chicken takes to cook and then you pop out and what has happened then is all your herbs and salt and everything has infused into the chicken and uh, yeah it's delicious oh, so okay that's amazing <laughs> Um, and I wanted to ask you, you mentioned dumplings there at one point, and we actually, when we were thinking of doing this episode, we were having this big discussion around dumplings um, and uh, Chinese New Year as well, and and that tradition around the Chinese New Year. And I was just wondering, um, the communal tradition of making uh, Zhaozi, uh, the northern Chinese dumplings at Chinese New Year, I know your family is originally from Hong Kong, but does that tradition uh like would you have had that tradition in your family around Chinese New Year growing up or do you still have it or do you do anything like that around the around the celebration funny enough for I my aunt who is from um Hyben, um she from the north of China she would be um um I, I guess making a lot of dumplings a, a lot of jiaoji um or gaozi as we call it in Cantonese and uh her traditions would be exactly as you described for um our for Cantonese however uh, more south in mm-hmm. uh, south of China well our south um yeah south of China Canton region being south and also Hong Kong um we would do a lot of sweet dumplings and uh, sweet dumplings have nothing in sometimes they have some stuff in the center but they're made out of um rice um, uh, um, rice-based kind of um, pastry. It's not even a pastry. It's more a. I don't know how to describe it. Is it has, the one where I guess it's if you're listening, is it like the coconut one that you usually serve for New Year? No, it's not the. No, it's not the croquette types. It's the in in Japanese. It will be a mochi. A mochi. You know, okay. Um, it, okay. It, yeah, so so the mochi, so the the uh, glutinous kind of rice wrapping would then have something in the center, like a sesame place or a notice place or or something, and then they get rolled up. So the tradition is you make these on uh, New Year's Eve and you roll them up, and then once um it is the New Year's Day, you cook it, and it's a sign of a new kind of uh, beginning and a sweet beginning. So and that's a tradition that we used to do in the house, which is make those dumplings on the next day eat them now i'm not a big fan of sweet dumplings so (laughs) not 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 to sound like the absolute ingrate there so but uh yeah so when my aunt came into the family she she married my uncle uh my mom's brother when she came along and it was like tradition was making savory dumplings i was going score this is is gonna be a Game changer altogether. So. I'm from the north of China, so I was just going to say, Dongbei Jiao! Dongbei Jiao! Yes, we have yeah. the best dumplings. <laughs> you, you and my aunt should get together and then you can have dumpling parties when you invite me and I'll just come and eat them all. So. Um, 
I wanted to ask you, like, as a celebration, what does the Chinese New Year mean to you here, and um, do you cel- how do you celebrate it? Uh, it used to be okay before uh, these really horrible, challenging times that you would meet your family uh, uh, the day the night before, and then the days after you go to to your different. Um, uh, aunts and uncles and friends and family and you go and say what we call bailin which is greet, um, greetings uh, on New Year's and well wishes and you will go to various families and kind of wish them well and it's like people going around at Christmas delivering presents but instead you're going around just with greetings. If you're a young unmarried person by which I mean a kid um, you get extra lucky because you get what we call a lysi which is a red envelope full of money so or not full of money but with some money and anyone that's married has to give lysi to anyone that's not so my brother used to love <laughs> being driven around by me to all my aunts and uncles because he would make a killing so just by uh by uh, turning up on their door, wishing them Happy New Year and walking away with a tenner so, uh, or 20 or more in some cases. So that, uh, but then it's all about family. So like New Year, I think like uh, the big specificities in any culture um, is about family, it's about community. And I guess that's why it's particularly hard this year and last year. I think last year when this first, the, the COVID first started was around Chinese New Year time. And it was particularly hard for people not to gather, not to be able to be with their families. Like, especially in the likes of China, like Chinese New Year is one of the biggest uh, movement of people uh, in the world. So people would go home, people would travel to, to their family and it, to not be able to see and kind of be around family. I think it's very hard for us in, um, I guess in Dublin for my family, for my mom, it's really hard because she hasn't seen her brothers and sisters in, in a year now at this stage, like her brother has stage four cancer and she hasn't been able to see him. So it is really difficult knowing that in a time when you're supposed to be celebrating and being with your family, you just can't. Now saying that, I'm really hoping in a new year and with how things will roll out with the vaccines and with everything else that maybe we'll, we'll have a much better year and a much more fruitful and and um i guess um like closer year than mm. before there's still like we can't forget what we've lost and the people that we've lost but at the same time we also have some hope in where we move forward to and i'm hoping with that with a new year coming in that that it will be that so not to bring it down to a downer i'm sorry <laughs> no. i mean That's i think it's by the way, I have to go yeah, in a no, second. This is, this is the, like, actually, this was the last question. It's kind of Chinese New Year because we are in a new year um, and we're sort of reflecting on this. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about to the beginning, which is about, you know, when we are in the new year, like what can the international Irish community, specifically in those in food businesses, what advice would you give them? How can they grow and what can Ireland do to support them? Well, you touched on the question of discrimination earlier, and I was very clear on the fact that, again, it's not a majority, it's only a minority. The majority of Irish people, especially knowing that for 
us here growing up here and uh, having friends and family here that the majority of Irish people are so supportive. They're not racist. They want to challenge these uh, issues, but it's the minority that's really vocal. And what we need to do coming into a new year is be able to reach out, be it virtually, because we can't do it physically, and also stand in solidarity. Like the one thing I've seen in the last couple of weeks here, especially through this office, is the amount of goodwill and the amount of people willing to support my own family. And what I would ask is because, like, luckily, I have a platform. I'm I'm one of those lucky ones that people, when I ask for support or call out, people support me. There are many uh, of people within the minority com- uh, within the minority communities or within different areas of diversity that wouldn't have that. So as we go into a new year, what I would really implore people to do is reach out. If you think that there is any discrimination going on, challenge it. There is no such thing as it being an innocent bystander. Challenge it, report it, make sure you're there for, for the person that's being discriminated against. Because I think with Chinese New Year, with any New Year, it's all about new beginnings. And it's it's about willingness to step up to the challenge when we're faced with it. Amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. And it's nice to end on lovely positive note no like that. It's just been so fascinating uh, speaking to you. As May said at the beginning, we've both admired you so much for so long. Um, and yeah, we've just been dying to do a deep dive with you on your food interests and loves. And it's so nice to hear them. One day when we ob- open back up, May, we can We're make dumplings with your auntie. Yes. And we can trash uh, your auntie yeah. and I can trash talk Cantonese people. I miss that. <laughs> I'm happy to. I'm not sure my mom would like that for sure. I'm happy to oh, taste uh, test the dumplings. <laughs> yes, we will come taste test the dumplings, Dave. But this is the thing. That's one of the things I really want to do this, with this house. I want to open it up to have these things like play groups or um uh or cooking yeah. groups because food is what, what kind of brings communities together so i really wanted kind of different cuisines different groups coming in and using the there's a commercial kitchen here using that and being able to kind of create a community we can't do it but i'm hoping that by um april yeah. maybe we can do it and have it outdoors and then at least that's something now it won't be big like what i had thought of of like 50 60 people coming in from different communities um uh, kind of uh hanging out and enjoying food but it might be 10 15 yeah. or 20 people so hopefully we'll be able to do that but well it's been lovely to chat to you guys thank okay. you thanks so much bye bye May, I don't know about you, but I absolutely adored speaking to Lord Mayor Hazel Chu. Yeah, she's she's so feisty, genuine, funny, and honest. And also she talks about food in a really vivid way, which I, I think we both appreciate. Mm, Blanca, what did you think? I you know, it reminded me a little bit of reading um when I was a teenager or maybe older than a teenager, um, that those books Amy Tan. <laughs> Um, the books like the God, the um, the God's Kitchen Wife and things like that. Just when she when she was describing plucking feathers in the kitchen, I just wanted to hear more about that. Mm. That life, you know. I don't know. I've always loved restaurants. I would have loved to to be behind the scenes in a restaurant. So I, I thought that was fascinating. Her growing up in in a restaurant in a Chinese restaurant in Ireland. 
but also even just the kind of um I love the story of the the chip van and you know how she kind of said you know having to go there every day after school and then just sitting there and helping out her folks you know it was just you know I suppose looking back on it now she looks back on it fondly and the story of how she went out there recently and she saw there was a wall there instead and she got really freaked out by it and um it's just I'd say she has a lot of memories now looking back on that time that seem really funny or crazy but during the time it was just this part of her world it was part of growing up um, with her parents, you know, pushing to get their first restaurant and everything. And I wanted to ask May a question about, um, you know, the expression being a banana, uh, that where you're white on the inside and yellow on the outside. I've heard other, you know, Chinese, Chinese American friends say that. Like, have you ever been accused of being a banana or told you're a banana? And how do you feel about that? All the time. Oh, we also have Twinkie. Oh, I've never heard that one. Yeah, because yellow on the outside, white on the inside. Um, I but mean, she said to me during the interview, like, it's really bad term, right? Like, not to use that if you go to Hong Kong? Um, no, 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 don't. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, also, probably, if you're a white person, maybe don't, you know, call. Um, Anybody. Well, it's not that I would, but I just think, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can maybe use that. I mean, I think definitely when I've been called that, it's been sort of affectionately among friends when we're just, you know, jabbing at each other. Like, mm. oh, you know, you listen to, you listen to Snow Patrol. Like, you're such a Twinkie. <laughs> you like, you know, you like wooden floorboards. You're such a Twinkie or banana, right? Um, it is definitely um, used out of context and not affectionately very, very offensive. Um but um, but yeah, certainly, um, and and I think that it's it's definitely prevalent in the way I grew up, right? Because again, like I I think that we have absorbed so much white culture, and in many ways we were ashamed of being Chinese, right? So how do you try to how do you try to make your way in a society where you feel like you're kind of hideous and um, and, and so you, you then take on, yeah, you take on white culture. Hmm. It's interesting, these stories of migration and the second generation, and I guess her daughter will be a third generation, but, um, it's interesting, you know, how many people have to move either because of a business reason or people like me love, or, you know, you move because of war or because your country, you can't live there anymore. So it's, it's very interesting. I think, you know, also Chinese people seem to move a lot for, um, for business reasons and they're very entrepreneurial. So I love all these stories of, of the different generations and the different jobs they do and, and the education of the children and what they aim their children to be. And I think May and I have discussed this, how the Chinese have played Place such an important value on education yeah. and the second generation. She also said she started, she was started school by her parents when she was three. And it's funny how she was kind of saying now her daughter is three and she would never put her into school that early, but it was just that thing of, and May, I think you said you had similar experience, but just, yeah, you know, of like different generations and, and the, the emphasis on education. I mean, it's emphasis. Yes, absolutely. But it's also um, if you're Chinese and put in th um, at three years old, you are by far the smallest kid. 
<laughs> in your class. <laughs> um, which, and that was what I, I don't know, that's what I took out of it. Um, but I did also, I think that um, what I really admired from Hazel was also just in certain ways, how she tried to toughen herself up. She loves her mother. She did. I mean, I know she's talked about it a couple of times and where, you know, they've had attacks on the, had t- attacks in the restaurant when she was a child. And her response to it was to, you know, learn karate. Hmm. And I just, I, for me, I just, that, that I have so much respect for. Yeah. I also love what she's doing in terms of the cultural events that she's been organizing. You know, she organized around Christmas in Dublin. Like, I really think she's bringing something new to the role. And, um, you know, around Chinese New Year now, she's organized so many things online this year, um, which is really nice to see as well. Oh, also, um, I had a great time um, sort of, I think, you know, like teasing each other about um, the North and South differences. And the thing that I appreciated was that she pointed out that because she's Cantonese, the idea of jiaozi, which we were just talking about, is not necessarily in her tradition. However, she had an aunt from the North who married into her family, and that's why she makes dumplings. Yes. Exactly. I loved how you guys were sparring over that. And I think if you if you and her aunt are ever to meet or anything, I definitely want to be there and witness what goes down between the two of you. It was hilarious. I think I got an invite. Just- I think you did. I think you did. I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Yeah. But um, May, you wanted to chat about um, uh, a letter from a listener. This was a letter that was written to us by listener Lin Chen, and she was responding to a recent restaurant review of a non-Chinese, Irish-owned Chinese eatery. And she thought that the portrayal of Chinese Chinese food or Chinese food by Chinese people was somewhat broad and offensive in that it suggested that the produce was dubious and the sauces were the same. And she also wanted to consider the broader implications of this. Um I really, I think we all agreed we really liked this letter. Um, it was very fair. Um, and I think it expressed a lot of the things that we have been talking about. And I do want to quote, um, and she had written to the paper that had published the review, but they haven't published it yet. So anyway, I quote, I wonder if you realize the associations you perpetuate around Chinese people, food culture, and race, racial bias. Chinese culture in Ireland has a wide variety of offerings, ranging from takeaways that have catered to Irish palates, such as spice bags or curry or chips, to restaurants specializing on specific geographic areas in China, such as Xi'an, Sichuan, Cantonese, etc. To imply that ingredients that come from Chinese takeaways are, quote, suspect or, quote, dubious, perpetuates xenophobic beliefs about Chinese people. You seem to be able to respect the offerings of Chinese restaurants when it is referred when it is run by a non-Chinese person with non-Chinese ingredients. Well, I do not doubt, and then the restaurant will leave a blank, their abilities or genuineness. The cultural appropriation that comes out of what you write tells readers that a white person creating Chinese food is to be trusted and enjoyed, but Chinese food cooked by Chinese people is to be feared and avoided. And here Lynn goes on a little bit to talk about some of the xenophobia against Asians in Ireland, notably since covid um, and I have experienced that myself. Okay. And then I just want to jump to her last paragraph. Cause I really thought that this was lovely. She says, we need food writers who appreciate not only diverse tastes, but also cultures that have produced them. 
the Irish palate is increasingly interested in where food is sourced. That interest should extend to a meal's cultural roots as well as its origins. We need the media's responsibility in promoting equality more than ever, not adding to hierarchical divisions. Yeah, I mean, Lynn was, it was a great letter. Um, She's, you know, she really got her point across. And I think when I read it, I definitely, it's something we've talked about, right? So there's, you know, it's not, it's not the only, the, the piece that she's referencing is not the only piece that we've seen that, you know, in the Irish media where things like this have happened. Um, and I just think she really just put her point across so well. And we're so thankful to Lynn for contacting us. And it's something we just felt it's it's good to voice to everybody because I do think she's right. Like people, Irish palate is increasingly more interested in where food is sourced. And it's so important. Just there's a responsibility there if we're writing about it to make sure we do so appropriately. Um, I think um, Hazel Chu made a very important comment about sometimes writing about these restaurants or different restaurants from different countries that we might know, know not know so well that we need to make an effort. And I think sometimes the easy way out is, you know, you want to explore, I don't know, Mexican, but you're more comfortable if it's, you know, somebody from your own country. And I think this happens in a lot of countries. I don't think Ireland's the only place. I think, you know, these situations happen in America, in Spain, but I think we need to give these people a chance and we need to, you know, just honestly write about places that are, you know, that were a little bit maybe not so comfortable where the menu, maybe we won't understand everything. But I think, you know, it's just a little bit of human nature that you want to be as comfortable as possible. And restaurants, sometimes if you don't know a lot about the restaurant or about the culture, can be a little bit daunting to some people. So, you know, just go out there and just ask the questions and try to get the answers. You know, just sometimes we take the easy way out. I do think as well, it's really nice to see diversity in writers. And, you know, I love reading different blogs and websites and newspapers, obviously, you know, read so much about food um, from different countries as well as Ireland. And it's just always nice to hear different perspectives and knowledge. Um, And I think you learn so much from that. And I think in Ireland, sometimes there's a kind of a, a very similar tone or voice. And it would be really nice to just see a few more faces and names and diversity across, across the writing um, as well. I mean, I also, I mean, and maybe this goes back to um, their Twinkie banana conversation, but I have, I mean, you know, on the other side, seen Chinese immigrants, especially being their own worst enemy um, because um, they've been told that their food is terrible, right? And so they cater to what they perceive their audience wants. Um, And then occasionally they'll go out, and I've definitely had uncles and aunties who are just like, if they go to an expensive Chinese meal, they'll go, wow, this was expensive. And and then I think some of us, too, have grown up with this mentality, as it says, as, you know, white is better, and we're trying to get out of that. Um, And that's been drummed into us. And so, therefore, when somebody who is fancy and Caucasian starts doing our food, sometimes we trust them also. And this is something that I feel like we as Chinese immigrants need to change. 
Yeah, the the Chinese menu where um, it's written in Chinese and nobody can understand it, and you're looking at the other table saying, "I want that," and they don't want to give it to you because they think you're going to return it. I think, yeah, there needs to be Chinese people need to be maybe more proud. We've discussed this, I think, in the episode with Guanji, just being proud to put their food out there and you know not be scared they're going to return it. But I think what Lynn says about celebrating both diverse tastes and cultures. And sort of, you know, investigating the origins of where our food comes from, but also its cultural roots. I feel like that's that's a pretty good Chinese New Year's resolution. Definitely. Definitely. So should we resolve on that? Um, and, you know, and also our Lord Mayor's commitment to bringing sort of a new, more diverse Ireland and a more tolerant one. Absolutely. And happy year of the ox, people. Yeah, what's this, what does it um, symbolize, the year of the ox? The year of the ox is, I mean, it's usually the sturdy one. Okay, that makes sense. Um, Blanca, are you year of the ox? No, I'm year of the pig. You're year of the pig. Which is supposedly a very good one. It's a very good year, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, because pork symbolizes so much nourishment. Yeah, no, you're just... I have just a feeling I'm the rooster? That's an excellent year. And of course, also, you're going to say that. You're not going to say my year is bad. No, no, no. But also, there are some there are some animals some that are considered like dog. You don't. <laughs> my best mate is dog, and like you just don't like they just they have the worst luck. Really, I think dragon. And so yeah, so dragon I'm, is the best. So I'm dragon, but also the reason oh, why no. I said, yeah I am dragon. So, but also why I said D, I was like, oh, you're rooster. So like. There's always um, three signs that get along the best. And it's, you know, so the three signs. So it's dragon, rooster, and monkey. And, like, we're best mates. So that's why I got really excited when you said Yay. rooster. Yay. It was written in the stars <laughs> or whatever whatever <laughs> these are written in. Yeah, it is astrology, right? So, I mean, I think it's cool. I, I always love um, the Chinese astrology and kind of reading into the different years. and. Um, you know, it's nice. Yes. Um, and then sometimes you have your best mate who tends to, who won't believe in these things, but then just in case, if you're having a bad year, she'll go yeah. stand in line at a Buddhist temple in Hong Kong and get a charm blessed and send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. We forgot one really cool thing about Chinese New Year is the red envelopes. Um, what? Hong Bao, Hong Bao. Where you get money in a red envelope and children and everyone loves getting those envelopes. I'm so going to get a red envelope with money. Yeah. Well, well people no, give D, you a you present of money. Yeah. Oh. But do you got to do it in the next month? Is it, am I allowed to say that D is getting married next month? So the whole point is that unmarried people get the red envelopes and they're given to them by married people. So, you know, so you gotta, this is your last, this is your last draw. <laughs> <laughs> for I mean, amen to that. There's for a lot of things, May. A lot of things. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast episode. Let's not get into it. <laughs> and okay. This was this was such a fun way to celebrate um the new year. And I just have so much admiration for the Lord Mayor. And I just thank her again if she's listening for speaking with us and sharing her stories and memories. I just absolutely love them. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> what crash bang? What was that in the background? 
We all want a cleaner energy future for our next generation, for the planet, and for ourselves. 180 Degrees is a podcast that answers concrete questions about energy conservation by sharing the stories of people across Ireland working towards a cleaner energy future. Tune in to hear about energy-efficient cars, what the term energy-efficient actually means, and this week, what you can do to improve your own home energy rating. 180 Degrees is brought to you by the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland, supported by the Government of Ireland. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.